0: Today on Pence Exchange, Building Resiliency, How Societies Cope and Adapt to Shocks. Welcome to Pence Exchange. The forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Markus Brunermeier. He is the Edward Sanford Professor in the Economics Department at Princeton University and Director of Princeton's Bentheim Center for Finance. His research focuses on international financial markets and the macroeconomy with special emphasis on bubbles, liquidity, financial and monetary price stability and digital money. He has been awarded several best paper prizes and served on the editorial boards of a number of leading economics and finance journals. His recent book, which we will be discussing today, The Resilient Society, won the prize for the 2021 best business book in German and was listed among the best economics books by the Financial Times. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, Fernando. Great to be with you. Human societies are inherently prone to recurring shocks that constantly disrupt their organization. As societies become more complex, the threat of impending shocks becomes more evident and relevant too. The COVID-19 pandemic is but the latest example of it. It will not be the last. How can we effectively manage these shocks? How can we wield better societal mechanisms to cope better and assure us a return to normalcy? Today, Marcus will help us understand the severity of the issue. Well, the book you wrote argues that we should strive for resiliency rather than robustness or risk avoidance. Let's start by discussing what do you mean by that? What is the definition to use of resilience? So resilience is essentially the ability to bounce back.
1: It's like the mean reversion. And so it's different from robustness. The robustness is about uh, withstanding a shock. So you're, you're hit by a shock and don't move at all. While resilience means you give in, but then you bounce back later on. So in terms of resources you need or redundancies and extra buffers you need, you need fewer buffers if you have a resilience. And you can actually handle more shocks. So you're much more uh, resilient in a sense because you can handle a lot of shocks. And there was a, a writer in 17th century in France, La Fontaine, and he put it very nicely. He compared the oak with the reed. And you know, the oak is very resistant so it doesn't move at all it's very rigid and you know when the wind comes it moves a little bit but not much but the reed is constantly swinging the winds and you know and it looks like the reed is much weaker and it's much more volatile and the oak is a powerful strong thing but then when a hurricane comes the oak falls over and the reed is still bouncing back and in this uh, story on this Actually, the the, the reed talks to the oak, and the oak says, I bend, I bow, but I don't break. Essentially, the oak has a tipping point, and once you hit the tipping point, it falls over and can't come back up. And resilience is all about being able to bounce back, mean reversion and things like that, while uh, rigidity, you you want to avoid rigidity, like the oak being very rigid, looks very stable, but ultimately, once you break through the so-called robustness barrier or some tipping point, you fall over and then you can't come back.
0: And the difference with respect to risk avoidance?
1: So risk avoidance means that you avoid any risk in the first place, uh, while uh, resilience means you take on risk. And what it means is you try you, go, you try out different things, you experiment and you open to failure and learn from it. And what you want to avoid is particular risks. So, while risk avoidance means you avoid anything with a high variance or a high risk associated with that, resilience means you avoid risks which are associated with traps, because once you're hit by a shock and then you're trapped, you can't bounce back, or shocks which are associated with adverse feedback loops, or shocks which are associated with um, tipping points. So, these are the three types of resilience killers. So, if a risk is associated with these type of attributes, Uh, traps, feedback loops, or uh, associated with tipping points, then actually you should avoid this risk. But otherwise, you should be able and should be open to takes on some risks, in particular if the risk means you learn. And that means on average, you will do better because you will learn through trial and error. You enter some risky environments, but you know you will bounce back. And uh, that's essentially what we are classifying, which I argue essentially don't
0: look for risk or not risk, we look for particular risks you can take and particular risks you should avoid. The framework you build upon suggests resiliency at a societal level hinges upon accepting the strengths and weaknesses of governments, markets and social norms. Could you elaborate a bit on why this is so important?
1: So what I argue in the book, you know, as a society, we live together, we have a social contract with each other. And the question is you know, how is the social contract designed? So it could be that if I am hit a shock, I react in a particular way, which then causes an externality to you, and then you react, respond to that again, that causes a spillback, a back externality to me, and then I react further this way, and we get in a spiral or some feedback loops. When a social contract should be designed in such a way to limit these feedback loops, and how to implement that a well-designed social contract are different ways, different institutions, and what plays an important role are, um, social norms the government and markets and that's why I argue you know what is the optimal combination between two and that depends on this country every country has a different emphasis on the three elements of this social norms markets or uh, the government in order to minimize these externalities and minimize these feedback loops and so forth um, and then I argue essentially if you look for example in Japan there's a, the social norms are very very powerful so they don't have to enforce, people wearing masks because, you know, the citizens themselves enforce it, so their social norms are such that you don't really have to enforce it. In other countries, less so do you if the government has to step in. And all of these social norms and government intervention markets are different, so social norms are very rigid, so they don't move much. If you go in a pandemic, you don't adjust much to social norms immediately. While the government can adjust and make sure the externalities are internalized so it can change the law much more quickly than we can change social norms. And what's important is the optimal combination of these three things. You should also be flexible in this regard. So it could be if you go in a pandemic, you limit certain freedoms because the externalities are much stronger. But the important thing is that once the pandemic is over, you the government has to withdraw again. So a resilient society or s- resilient social contract is one which is implemented in a way that, you know, the optimal point is moving back and forth depending how the environment changes. And that makes then the whole uh, contract itself much more resilient. On
0: a related point, I don't know if you have read Bernard Troskin's last book, The Box of Liberty, in which he argue- argued that historically the United States built political institutions that favor individual liberty which created incentives for long economic growth, but also hindered the federal government's capability to react against public health threats. Up until what point would you say that building a resiliency for a specific sphere may preclude or even hurt resiliency in other spheres? Yeah, that's a a very
1: important point. So that's an interesting question. You know, it could be you're very resilient in one dimension because you put all your buffers there, and you're not resilient in, in other dimensions. And uh, I think that's very, you know, just to give you one example. Uh, if you look at the low interest rate environment, if the interest rate is very low, you have actually less power to conduct monetary policy to cut the interest rate because, you know, you can't go too much negative for the interest rates. So if the interest rate environment is very low, you don't have much room to be resilient with using monetary policy. But on the other hand, it's more easy for the government to go into debt because the interest rate is low, so you don't have to pay so much for the uh, the debt. So you have more room, more fiscal space uh, because of the low interest rate. So resilience with the low interest rate moves away from the monetary policy towards the fiscal policy. And that's essentially what uh, uh, changes uh, there. And so in general, there is a trade-off. You can have too much focus on one dimension and then you neglect other dimensions. And typically the advantage of resilience, again, coming back to robustness, is that you have some redundancies or buffers which you can redeploy. So if you go for robustness for each type of shock, you need a particular buffer and, and particular redundancies. If you go for resilience, you need fewer redundancies, but you need redeployable redundancies. So you hit by a shock and then you have your reserve troops or whatever, you have some extra redundancies and you can readjust them quickly in order to make sure you bounce back again. And uh, this way, you can cover resilience in a broader set of, of shocks. That's the ideal arrangement, but I agree with you, if you have very focused redundancies, you do this at the expense you will be a very resilient one for certain type of shocks, but not resilient for other types of shocks.
0: One key aspect of complex systems is their trial and error approach to building resiliency. In your book, you use the COVID-19 pandemic as an example to illustrate the principles of resilience management. I wanted to ask you about the potential of implementing policies in an ex-ante manner. Because ex-post assessments of how different countries have fared, given the policies, can be quite misleading. For example, right now, comparing outcomes from Sweden versus New Zealand. But is it possible to enact efficient resilient policy from the get-go or do we need this experimentation? So I think you need a certain degree of so resilience
1: means to be agile and respond the right way so it, you need a certain uh, so you need both so you need experimentation trial and error and figuring things out and we have seen it in the pandemic you know we didn't know how the virus will react and how the each wave we is reacting differently. So we have to be agile and learn and adjust according to this adjustment, this adaptation, the reaction, that's a key element of of resilience. So that's an exposed thing, but it does mean you shouldn't do anything ex ante. It also means ex ante you should prepare for certain shocks and build up certain buffers uh, and certain reserve units and and things like that. So you have a combination of both, uh, but uh, the, the other aspect of your question I would like to come in is the complexity, uh, where you say, okay, so, you know, is the society becoming more and more complex? And does this make, essentially, our society less resilient or more resilient? And I want to switch it a little bit, uh, saying, a more, if you have a very homogeneous society, it seems less complex, so everybody is the same. But that means... Uh, You know, when you're hit by a shock, everybody's hit the same way. So we cannot really help each other much. So the, the degree we can ensure each other is much more limited because we're all the same. Every shock will be an aggregate shock. We're all hit by the same shock. I cannot help you when we all face the same shock. But if you have a more heterogeneous society, and you know, one would argue complexity and heterogeneities, if a heterogeneous society is more complex, then when there's a shock coming from outside, some people will be hit much more, others will be benefiting even, and then we can insure each other much better. So if the shocks are more idiosyncratic shocks rather than aggregate shocks or systematic shocks. And then if the social contract can help us much more, we can do more, and that also leads to more resilience if we have a better insurance scheme this way. And um, the, the spirit of resilience is not necessarily you just compensate somebody for losses, he suffers from a shock, but also to help them to bounce back. So it's like if you fall unemployment, if you fall unemployment, you don't give only unemployment and insurance payments, but you might give some help for reskilling and things like that and retrain people and try to bring them back into society. And uh, that's... Uh, a different slightly different spirit but in, in general it's the case if you have a more complex society with more heterogeneity uh, then it is uh, you know there's more resilience there but Purely complexity on its own doesn't help, but if heterogeneity is the reason for the complexity, then it's useful.
0: Now that we're talking about heterogeneity, you're focusing kind of on the benefits, but we—I mean—there are also some costs. I mean, the literature about conflict is all about given that we are different, the social contracts became far more difficult. You previously talk about Japan as basically a country with social norms that are basically previously enacted, and they all use basically masks. So Japan is a quite homogeneous society. So what would you say? about
1: that yes yeah, so Japan is a, is a fairly homogeneous society so for them you know any shock is, is more homogeneous shock it's the same thing also for the Scandinavian countries for example and so the tension is a little bit as I mentioned uh, just before is that if you have more heterogeneous society you can help each other much more because the ability to help is much more but as Alberto Alibina has shown in his research the willingness to help each other is actually more pronounced in homogeneous societies. So there's a, an optimal degree of heterogeneity. So if you're very homogeneous, you can't help each other because you all face the same shock. If you're very heterogeneous and everybody is very different, then willingness is not there to help each other. So, but this, there's probably some golden middle way uh, where you say, okay, if we have certain degree of heterogeneity, this way we can still help each other and we're also willing to help each other. And that's essentially, uh, you know, what the optimal outcome then is to be more uh, resilient as a right. society.
0: Uh, at several points across your book, you mentioned that behavioral aspects affect responses to shocks at both the individual and societal levels. Would you say there is a risk of or, of overreaction against the shocks? And I'm not just referring to short-term responses, but also to long-term ones. And I'm just giving you an example, like how Germany's experience with the hyperinflation in the 1920s may have made the Deutsche Bundesbank overly cautious in its monetary policy, or how Eastern Europe experience with communism may have changed their mindset towards a more conservative society. So that's indeed, it can be the case. I mean, the Germans would argue that the
1: Bundesbank being conservative is actually yeah. worked out very well <laughs> for Germany. Uh, it's more stability-oriented policy, and uh, they wouldn't like to depart from it. Um, and so one experience of hyperinflation is enough, in a sense. Um, but it is indeed the case that the experiences have some Uh, scarring effects. So it has some positive effects. You learn from that, ideally, but they also have some scarring effects. You change beliefs, so people become more risk-averse. So if you went through a period, uh, then you become very risk-averse. So there are famous research by uh, Stefan Nagel and Ulrike Malmendier showing that depression babies that, you know, people who lived through the Great Depression, they behave very differently. And people who lived through the 1970s high inflation period, they see inflation much more dangerous than people who didn't live through it. So just experiencing as a country, as a society, certain uh, negative effects and other effects changes people's perception and also the beliefs, but also the, the preferences. And that has implications then what they want and what should be implemented. And that's why it's important that you have you know, a certain resilient society, so you never let it go to hyperinflation and then, you know, you can bring it down uh, again. But I think it's not general. So there are other countries who have a lot of hyperinflation, very high inflation in Latin America somewhere. And there doesn't seem to be a change in beliefs or attitude towards
0: inflation. But uh, let me ask you a counterfactual question. If Germany hadn't experienced hyperinflation in the early 20th century, the Bundesbank would have acted differently in the 20th century. So maybe basically the long-growth path of Germany would have been different. So in that sense, the shock actually was kind of useful in the long term. Yeah, one can see it that way. I mean, I would say that there's a, a, a strong
1: attitude within Germany for stability, to focus on stability, not only with respect to monetary stability, So I should tell you that after the First World War, of course, Germany was very unstable because the monarchy was gone. And there were different factions fighting on the street. And there was a lot of instability in the Weimar Republic in Germany. And that created probably a desire for more stability. At the moment, there's a huge degree of, uh, a huge preference for, for a stable society. And that might be actually more like the oak and much too stable, not willing to experiment and do some trial and error, or try out new things. And that actually might hinder growth potential as well. So there's an optimal degree how much stability you want to implement and what type of stability. I don't think, I would say the sentence like rigidity is not stability. You know, you would like to have a resilient way of implementing stability, so you you try, you try different things. Some things might not work out, but you learn from it. You bounce back, and so the bouncing back allows you to be more experimental, and uh, and perhaps be more stable in the long run and look at the average in the long run rather than just you know being frozen or very rigid and then securing stability. And that's essentially one of the main messages of the book: try out new things and whenever there's a shock, always go for two parallel strategies. One strategy is to contain the crisis as it is, but simultaneously, simultaneously also work on a bouncing back strategy back to the new normal. And you saw it in the pandemic. One is through the lockdown and also to contain things, but simultaneously also immediately do research on vaccine development. And that you need this two-pronged strategy, essentially, not just only Lockdown and make sure that everything is contained and no COVID strategy and all that. That's also important, but to have the second pillar uh, allowing you to bounce back down the road.
0: Great. Changing the topic a little bit, because in your book you cover a wide array of topics that are from macro to COVID-19 to climate change. So there are there is one term that caught my my attention because I've never heard before, which is about resilience inequality. So I would like to ask, how poor households are especially vulnerable to shocks, given their lack of buffers to affront them? Is this just a correlated effect of income and wealth inequality? Or would you actually argue that resilience inequality is the main factor that explains the other types of inequalities?
1: I would actually say it's more the latter. So I'm not saying that all inequalities is because of resilience inequality, but it is a contributing, and important contributing factor. And the reasoning goes the following. So you two people... Uh, they're both equally wealthy, and they both equal, have the same income, let's say. So have, there's no income inequality, and there's no wealth inequality. But the first person, if there's a shock, he can bounce back. The second person cannot bounce back. Uh, that has huge implications, my, in my opinion, because the first person, he can take on some risk. He can experiment. He can uh, you know, uh, start a business and take out advantage of certain opportunities and the second person will be scared to do that. And that translates down the road to income inequality because the first person is taking advantage of starting a business and all this and will be wealth, will be earning more and will be wealthy. Down the road, there will be higher income inequality and higher wealth inequality. So, this resilience inequality is actually then leading to this income inequality and this wealth inequality. Of course, it's only one contributing factor, but I think so far, uh, as I introduced this term resilience inequality, I think so far it was overlooked that this resilience is so important, it came up a little bit in some connections in connection of the poverty trap, so if you go to the developing countries, it's always argued you now once you're in a poverty trap, uh you're a farmer in and then suddenly you have a bad harvest, and you have to take the kids out of school and they can't go back to school anymore that's I'm making it a little bit more dramatic uh then it is the case you know they are trapped in poverty and they can never come back out of it. And so there's no resilience. So one bed harvest is really uh, trapping you uh, down the road, and that makes a huge difference. And if you have a, a system set up, uh, you can avoid these traps and this a lack of resilience. Uh, then it actually makes a. It's it's very very important to make this difference if you can do it as a, as a society to set it up this way. And I think we should work on that uh, to to work on you know eliminating resilience inequalities and this will help down the road to also reduce income inequality and reduce wealth inequality
0: yeah so i mean i I would say that maybe an example would be like not really a poverty trap because in a poverty trap you're kind of stuck in a suboptimal equilibrium which you cannot actually improve upon because you are stuck but more like in the us us a rich country but i mean it it lacks like a a public health care system you would say that's kind of typical example and you face a crisis like i mean you 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 got sick and then because the, the, the system is, I mean, it's not only private, but it has a, a lot of a private bad incentives, then you you face, I don't know, a large bill that you could never recover. Then maybe you have been previously rich, but because of the shock, you could not recover. So that would be kind of a resilience inequality, right? I mean,
1: that's correct. So one of the key elements in that is you can have either a different health insurance or more generally, you can have a different private bankruptcy code. So if you have a huge healthcare bill or something, you can actually default on on something. So that there are different elements how you can implement it. Uh, but I think a better healthcare insurance would uh, is, is a desirable feature. Um, and I think that's that's a, that's a good example where you know somebody who is very close to that and say, okay, "I might be hit by by health bill. I cannot take certain." Opportunities because I'm hit by the health bill. But, but what's a little bit so let me put my behavioral hat on and, and this element. In a sense, what's happening is that these healthcare expenses are such rare events that people totally ignore them. So, you know, if you have very rare events, you either totally ignore them or you put once they happen, or uh, more likely, than you just put too much probability mass on them. So, in a sense, by totally ignoring them, you have less of an issue that these guys will not pick up some opportunities by saying, oh, I will not fall sick anyway. So they totally ignore that. So uh, that mitigates this uh, resilience inequality, the consequence of the resilience inequality. But it doesn't mean that you should not have a healthcare uh, coverage.
0: In the last chapter of your book, you focus on the relation between resilience and sustainability applied to the problem of climate change. So in that you said resiliency is kind of a necessary condition for sustainability, but it's not really a sufficient one. So climate change, because it builds slowly over time, creates kind of timing consistency issues. So I would like to ask, how may resiliency help solve these kind of problems?
1: Yes, yeah, so what we are trying to do in the last part of the book is Uh, very much saying what is sustainability and how is it related to the concept of resilience? And I'm arguing if you have resilience, it's not enough to get some that that it's sustainable. So if something is not resilient, it's not sustainable. I don't know if we have a shock and then go down the train because of a tipping point. And in the environment, you have a lot of these examples. If the Gulf Stream stops, you can't switch it on anymore. If the permafrost in uh, the Antarctic stops, uh, then uh, then you can't really switch it on anymore. So it, that's essentially these tipping points. So that's that's one element. And so I outline that. And then on top of it, there comes a timing consistency uh, problem, which is connected to resilience. So in order to minimize climate change policies, the cost of climate change policies, you would like to give, specify a very clear path of the climate policies for the next 20, 30 years. Okay. So you want to minimize the risk premium associated with this policy. So don't make it very, oh, we might do this. We might do that. So you make a very clear path forward. So exactly, you have an incentive to minimize changes later on. And this way you have a clear path. And this way you minimize the risk premium on financing this climate change. But exposed when you learn actually climate change became way more severe or less severe, you would like to find you and react to that. And resilience is all about this reaction. As the environment changes, you want to be able to react to that. So if you ex-ante really tie your hands and fix a path, you cannot change it much exposed. And that's what where the tension comes in. So ex-ante, you would like to fix it. Uh, you would like to commit to a clear path going forward. Exposed, you would like to change it. And this... Uh, uh, and you need these changes for resilience, so this helps the resilience as well. Uh, but that's where the, the tension comes in, the time and consistency comes in. What, do you, want what do you want to do ex ante versus what you want to do ex post?
0: One related thing about climate change and about the problems inherently in, the, in it is the necessity for global coordination. And I think in your book, you kind mm-hmm. of focus mostly on policies kind of on a government level but what would you say is necessary to build a world that is resilient not only a country a government within a country that is resilient how can you kind of coordinate these different issues in a world stage
1: so that's indeed extremely important Uh, so we have essentially climate is is a common good uh, and you have a lot of global uh, public goods or even And for this, we have typically free rider problems and other problems. So we need some global governance to internalize these free rider or externality problems, and uh, that that's key. What we have to set up uh, corporate governance or some system. And what I outline in this book is you know, Bill Nordhaus had this idea of organizing clubs. Now you have a certain club, and if Certain countries join together as a club, and then they have stricter environmental regulation in the club. Um, but they also provide some benefits for being part of the club. So if you want to sell in this, this club, you can also impose some uh, border adjustment taxes and all this. So that's one uh, way to uh, internalize that. But you typically, in, in terms of environment or climate change, you have this double externality. So on the one hand, you have these environmental externalities and hence, there's too much pollution going on because I don't fully internalize these externalities. And then you have to do R&D and you do some research to develop new technologies. And typically, we also have R&D externalities. So in environmental technology, you have two externalities, the environmental externality and the R&D externality, the research and development externality, where you know, the guy who is really doing the research is not getting the full benefits from doing the research because uh, the others learn from his uh, research as well. And uh, and that makes it particularly challenging. And that's what we have to internalize to essentially have a global social contract. So I was talking about a social contract, the purpose of a social contract is to internalize externalities. Here we have a global society. So we have a global social contract to internalize uh, these externalities and environment we have because of R&D this double externality.
0: One thing that I wanted to ask you, because I was not entirely sure if I was getting it correct from my reading of the book, is by being inherently complex and self-adapting, modern societies are already resilient to shocks even if they can improve upon them, or are they not resilient enough? In other words, are you an optimist or pessimist about the future of humanity? I
1: believe in the ingenuity of, uh, of humans. So I think, and, and that ingenuity means resilience. So it means you. I think the humans always react a little bit late. We have in the tendency, our political system is designed this way that we act uh, late. But once the shock comes, we typically can make it a turn, uh, make it go to bounce back, and uh, that's primarily due to our ingenuity and. If you have a social structure, or society, a societal structure which allows for people who are mavericks, who think a little bit differently, who push the envelopes, and as long as we have this open society, I think we can actually bounce back. Because there's always, in some corner in the world, there's somebody coming up with some clever ideas to help us and to bounce back. So I'm an optimist uh, still, and uh, I think one needs this optimism in order to be successful a pessimist is probably not so resilient. So just to be resilient on your own, it's probably helpful to be an optimist. Not, not too you know, naive, but optimistic. And so once you're hit by a shock, don't get point down. Try to be optimistic and get up and try and find your way Great.
0: back so, up. so that's a lesson for life, for individual success too. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for being here, Marcus.
1: Thank you, Fernando. It was a pleasure to be with you, and uh, and thanks for all the listeners for listening in.
0: Uncertainty is a pervasive trait of complex systems. Biological structures have evolved to create redundancies in their operations as a way to deal with unexpected shocks, hence becoming resilient. A prosperous human society is one that not only acknowledges the need to build resiliency through redundancies, but is also able to learn from crisis to improve upon its organization. However, the specifics of building resiliency are quite hard to accomplish as they hinge on a myriad set of aspects that depend on context, opportunity, and even luck. Social sciences are often regarded as being soft, yet, in this sense, they are quite hard. This has been Penns Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based, and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn_Exchange. Stay tuned.